So hi everyone, I'm here with Paul Josephak, who's the CEO of Receive, um, and they do a lot of work in the, in the digital space and got a lot of expertise around digital machine learning and um, some of the pieces and collections. Uh, welcome, Paul. It's really great to chat to you. Uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, um, so, so I think first off, I'm kind of interested in terms of some of the things you've been seeing through through COVID. I mean, obviously, you know, it's, it's affected all of us um, across the world. And I'm quite interested in your perspective in terms of seeing in terms of what you've seen in the markets you've been operating in. So um, it's kind of gone up and down. Um, so we're what almost nine months kind of into the pandemic. Um, what ultimately happened on our end at right at the beginning was pretty much, you know, deer and headlights effect. Most people didn't know what to do. So kind of everything slowed down for quite a bit. I think a lot of companies were just extremely focused on regrouping, um, kind of adapting to the work from home situation. You know, we had a couple of partners where, you know, they had to get 4,000 people into a home office. Um, that doesn't happen overnight. So mm. um, basically, you know, everyone kind of reverted to very specific core processes. Um, things went quiet for a little bit, but then I would say kind of throughout late spring, summer, um, things started to normalize as much as they could uh, with, you know, a lot of countries still going in and out of lockdown. So um, I would say the industry uh, or my specific industry was was very quiet, um, almost paralyzed for, for a little bit. Then people kind of started realizing, OK, we're going to have to adapt to whatever. You know, I hate using the word new normal, but uh, adapt to the new mm. normal. And um, and then I would say kind of like September time frame, things started picking up. So, um, again, a lot of people realized our industry specifically that, you know, there is going to be an upswing, whether you like it or not, as much as the pandemic is, um, you know, net net, very negative for society and for business at the other end of the spectrum for collections and uh, pretty much lenders and whatnot. Um, there is, there is quasi a little bit of a silver lining. We definitely see customers of ours, uh, you know, preparing for the future and mm. realizing that if they don't take a digital approach and don't automate workflows and don't take a very kind of, technology-centric view, um, they feel like they're going to be left behind. And I think that it was a wake-up call. So in a sense, the industry, um, whatever you want to call it, you know, everyone was forced to wake up. Everyone had to digitize overnight. And what would have taken 10 years, you know, we've all heard the cliche saying 10 years and three months. Mm. Um, I think it's very much uh, something that we're seeing. But, um, but very positively, people are starting to react. Um, I thought they might wait until next year, but we saw kind of Q3, Q4. Um, people were already being responsive. And, and has that made a big change in terms of people's budgets internally, in terms of clients and in like investments in digital uh, and those kind of things? I mean, how much, how much, has, how much has that changed? Because collections was always down the bottom in terms of mm. investments. And it feels like that's, that's, that sort of changed really. Well, if you kind of think about it, I mean, collections has always been seen something, you know, buried in the basement uh, yeah. within the accounting department. And once, you know, a lot of these businesses started happening, having to think about, you know, their cash flows and just basically making sure that, you know, they got the money that, you know, was basically booked as revenues collected. Um, it's one of the easiest ways to go about um, solidifying your business and your bottom line. So, you know, the focus switched to an extent to um, kind of looking at the cash flows and asking how can we accelerate that. At the same time, there were so many different effects because of COVID when it comes to the lending and collection space. So what, uh, what ultimately happened is that initially a lot of people started saving heavily because they didn't actually have expenditures. So I'm mm. sure you've heard this from other people in the sense that, you know, because we were all home, people weren't going out to eat, they weren't buying cars, they weren't, you know, basically purchasing luxury goods. So that actually led to a quasi upswing in terms of savings. What mm. a lot of people also did in the collections world or what, what affects the collections world is that because all of a sudden they had this free cash flow, they were paying down their debts. So mm. the, the industry in and of itself profited short term in the sense that a lot of people were willing to step up and kind of 
just pay down what was outstanding. I think, you know, after a certain amount of time, obviously reality hit and, you know, people weren't able to pay their rents. They weren't able to kind of live their lives as they did three or six months ago. Then again, they weren't necessarily paying down um, any debt that they had or catching mm. up on their collections uh, issues or, you know, accounts that were in arrears. And I think that's obviously just a, a swell that's growing right now because towards the end of the year, once all these kind of payment holidays, uh, mortgage holidays, you know, all these quasi um, postponements of, of due dates, once that all catches up, which will most likely be the case by, by January 1st of 2021, then you're going to see kind of the real effects of COVID from 2020. Um, and mm. I, I fear, I fear quite a bit for the economy in general that, uh, that there's a lot of people, you know, I don't, I don't know about Europe as much, but in the U S for example, you know, there's a ton of people who didn't have even three months savings on their, on their accounts. Mm. So, um, so there's going to be a big mess coming. Um, and again, for the collections industry, it's going to be, it's an opportunity obviously, but then also then the question is what are the recovery rates? Will you be actually able to collect? Yeah. I mean, so, so I think all the, the, the government, the government stimulus or the government, um, the government helped seem to really sort of like suppress delinquencies uh, in, the, in the short term, like over the summer. And then and then the question is just like, when does it when does it come back? I think over here in the UK, we were thinking it's, it was it was really going to be the end of the furlough period. Um, but that's now sort of been the cans almost like been kicked down the road, probably till exactly. c- certainly January, if not if not if not sort of March. And it's a lot, although it's sort of starting to trickle in. It's just when does when does that big wave come through? Um, I think I think in the background, I think it's a it's it's an inevitability. The question is when. Mm. I mean, I've even heard some posts, uh, some uh, some predictions that it might even be the middle of the next year that it could mm. really be kicked down the road for quite a while. I mean, obviously, a lot of these governments are in a position to do so, but at some point, um, you're going to have to have some rational thinking kick in, and mm. people will have to start thinking about you know how much of a how much of a wave are we building up, and then ultimately does it lead to you know tons of insolvencies where the collections industry isn't even able to collect on a lot of these mm. uh, a lot of mm. these payments so um, it's a balance yeah and, and what about the, the segmentation of the almost like the of, of the books right because it's, it's almost like this it's almost, it feels almost like it's cut cut the population in a different way than it traditionally would be right so normally it would be based on let's say let's say um, you know your your bureau school your bureau score and sort of like you know the traditional kind of indicators and a lot of those things have kind of changed now i mean you had people who were you know had really stable jobs let's say they're in the hospitality industry they had a really great business and they've just been decimated it feels like and yet you've got other people in you know uh you've got stable jobs let's say for example public sector is is a good example seems much more stable and it's almost like they've saved money as you say i mean how, how do you think it's best to kind of react to that in terms of that recutting and segmentation of the uh, of of the book, uh, particularly collections. Perfect storm, uh, as you mentioned. Let's say you're in the hospitality industry. You just bought, purchased a house. You know, mm. took down a lot of, uh, or took on a lot of debt for it because the interest rates are so low. You might be house rich and cash poor, right? I mm. mean, at the end of the day, anyone who's in that kind of a situation um, is obviously going to have an issue because they're going to run out of uh, run out of cash. Um, mm. What I think is going to have to happen is that, regardless of what the governments are doing, I think there's going to have to be a lot of um, almost compromised from the private sector in the sense that if you want to make sure that your customers are able to be your customers 12 to 18 months from now, you may Mm. have to kind of look at how can you potentially work together with them. I mean, that's a little bit kind of what the whole collections industry is kind of facing right now, where taking Mm. a customer centric approach to, um, to your customers means that, you know, you have to work together with them and work on potentially setting up installment plans, lending them capital so that they can actually, you know, stay, you know, focused on what they need to do is, which is basically funded, funding their, funding their core lifestyle or not even mm. lifestyle is the wrong term, right? Just basically their life, paying their mm. rent, buying food and, uh, you know, keeping the family uh, going or whatnot. Um, so 
it's again, it's almost it's almost difficult right now to say where that hit is because you and I could almost posit, yes, of course, someone in the hospitality industry who just bought a house, but there's going to be a bunch of kind of uh, follow-on effects which also won't kick in. I mean, uh, again, travel or hospitality, whatever happens there, it trickles down to other industries, yeah. and you're going to have kind of a staggered effect where multiple you know multiple segments which might not be hit immediately will ultimately at the tail end um, also mm -hmm. be hit. Whereas at the front end, people might be recovering to an extent because they've decided to switch industries or whatnot. I mean, we're thinking in 12-month cycles at this point, if not longer, to an extent, right? I mean, all the all the fallout of the pandemic isn't isn't uh, isn't captured and uh, and wiped off the tish, uh, off the table within within a year. Yeah, so it's interesting. So it's not just the the immediate effect you're saying. It's also then it's the, it's the knock-on effect and the knock-on effect and the knock-on effect and that almost like that oh, yeah. that that. That complexity becomes complexity squared or cubed. It becomes very difficult to kind of predict what's what's actually going to happen. Absolutely, and that's I mean that's the challenge, right? Because you also have to ask yourself kind of when does one go up and the other go down? Um, yeah. Because you have to plan over a much longer cycle, and I think that cycle of recovery is not one or two years. We're looking three, four, five, six, seven years out uh, out in terms yeah. of all of the knock-on effects of what's going to happen. Because if you just think about hospitality, restaurants, hotels, and whatnot, you know, once one of those businesses is out of business. I mean, mm. it's it's not coming back quickly. Uh, and then mm. the effect of just simply basically the residential or, or sorry, the, the commercial real estate where that restaurant or hotel is. And then, mm. you know, the, these are cycles that take much longer to play out. So. Yeah. And, and how, do, how do you think the collections industry should react to that? Um, I mean, obviously, we, we tend to be I mean, front and center in terms of talking to talk, talking to these folks or dealing with these folks. I mean, obviously, we've got forbearance plans that are in. We've got the various sort of treatment plans that are in. But do you think there's any sort of secret sauce, anything new that we need to think about, uh, you know, from before? before? Uh, I mean, the, the, the focus has to be on on resolution uh, via mm. compromise of some sort. I, mm. uh, I think you have to be pretty creative in terms of what you offer anyone who's in arrears um, mm. as a solution. Because, again, if someone doesn't have the cash, what are you going to do? Um, mm. At the end of the day, you're going to have to figure something out. So I think there's going to have to be a lot more of quasi um, versus kicking the can down the road, finding a solution that allows for a midterm to mid to long term resolution, um, because you simply can't, you know, basically write everything off or mm. or take everything to court. I mean, at the end of the day, you're also going to have to make the decision of do you take someone, for example, in a collections process into a legal process with the respective costs that are attached to that, um, mm. knowing well that you won't be successful, and who even knows what kind of happens regulatory wise. Uh, next year, I'd I'd be I'd be quasi pretty foolish right now to try to predict you know what are the governments doing 12 months from now, mm. when you know everyone is hit by this. A lot mm. of us kind of in the situation where you and I are interacting, you know we we're not maybe blowing up around this right now, but there sure is a lot mm. of people that we're not that we're not interacting with that are already kind of in the midst of it. And yeah. so you know you you might you might just have this wave that is also then via some regulatory changes, um, you know being held up. And my, yeah. my thought is that the industry, you know, I think uh, the question you ask of what needs to be done, I mean, I'm, I'm always a big proponent of digitalization. I mean, everything that you can digitize, uh, which allows kind of uh, significantly more to be done, um, obviously should be done, uh, but that's nothing new. I mean, everyone, the whole industry knows that it has to digitalize and automate workflows. I mean, that's just a no brainer right now. Um, but I think you have to also become creative about how you interact with uh, anyone in arrears. And I think that's where, you know, certain products might, might even show up on the market that we don't, that we don't foresee right now. Um, there mm. might be a whole new kind of wave of lending, which is targeting a very different approach to lending, right? Um, who knows, you know, what the governments do um, next year or the year after. So I think there might be there might just be opportunities in the industry in terms of thinking outside of the box 
what that is specifically, I think it's very difficult right now to say what it's going to be. Mm. And what about what about so digital? You mentioned around digital and sort of you know putting digital processes in place. You've got a, obviously got a lot of experience around that. I mean, how, how have you seen in terms of like take up from from a consumer point of view? I mean, do you think that's really sort of helped the adoption? Um, you know, in terms of like uh, I suppose adoption from you know end end clients and end customers really using it and getting more used to it. So I mean, you're seeing different levels of take up rates than you were before. Well, I mean, we, we it, it's almost it's almost um, chicken or egg, right? I mean, at mm. the end of the day, there was a huge shift that was going on in the collections world anyway because of a shift in demographics and the fact that almost everyone has gone to mobile or quasi online um, uh, devices. And let's put it this way, over the last couple of years, I mean, obviously making sure that the end customer is given the opportunity to pay using the modalities that they like to use and that they're comfortable using. The industry simply hasn't caught up to that. You're still in a situation where people have to sit down, go to their PC, put in a 14 digit IBAN code, which is the most ridiculous way of paying anything. Um, so we're seeing, for example, with our technology where we give multiple modalities and give the end customer a very simple way of paying. And depending on country, it could be something completely different, right? So for example, in the Czech Republic is a QR code, which moves yeah. the needle significantly in a very short amount of time. In other countries, it might be a different type of payment, be it credit card or be it PayPal or something. Um, so you see the immediate effect of that when you give it to a customer like ours who hasn't had it. I mean, the uptake is, is enormous because um, you see kind of things being paid within 24 hours that normally would have taken a couple of weeks. And the mm. cycles of, you know, up to 120 days can be reduced down to seven or 14 days. Mm. And that's just by giving the, the end customer kind of what they want um, and also making it as easy as possible, i.e. they can open something up on their, on their mobile phone and click a button and pay. Um, I mean, it's, it's as simple as that. But a lot of the industry hasn't caught up to that yet. And and do you see are there different behaviors in different markets? So you mentioned the Czech Republic there. I mean, is, is it is it do you think do you think there's different ones that are different that are popular in different countries? And do you think it will sort of combine into like the same kind of approach? I mean, will we reach sort of a common kind of approach, do you think? I think down the road, yes. Mm. You know, we'll all be paying with Bitcoin. I mean, that's um, I, I kid. I, I definitely don't think it's only that we're all going to be paying with Bitcoin. But <laughs> um, but you see you see a lot of differentiation uh, based upon, I guess, also the, the sophistication of specific countries or just kind of the, the historical growth. So in the Czech Republic, as an example, half of the population is completely modern in the sense that they live their lives on a mobile device. They skipped the PC mm. and went right to mobile because of the penetration of mobile networks versus landline. Mm. Um, so that's something that happened in the last 20 years. Um, but you also kind of see in the Czech Republic, for example, that there's a way of paying where you basically go to your uh, local post office, bring cash, and then the post office wires the money. It's a very rural, mm. rural population. And I actually come from Slovakia originally. So if you look at Slovakia or the Czech Republic or a lot of Eastern European countries, in the main, in the main cities, the capitals, Prague, Bratislava, you know, Budapest and Hungary, they're very sophisticated. Everyone has a mobile device. Everyone is used to using apps for payments and whatnot. Once you get you know an hour outside of town into very rural farm country, let's call it that, you know people are still forced to go to the post office and because they don't have a computer at home or they're not used to yeah. using a mobile device for things. So you're going to have certain countries that are going to be adapting things slower, others faster. If you go to Scandinavia, everything is so digital and uh, yeah. you know it feels like it's it's miles ahead. I think it'll take a while for everything to quasi equalize throughout Europe, for example. What about what about digital and data? I mean, digital gives us the opportunity to get a lot more data and then really use that to sort of drive experience. I think. I mean, I mean, what what, what 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 have you seen with that, and what are the the benefits? The because that, that allows us to do new things. Um, what what, well, if you what think are, about what, it? If you sorry to interrupt. Um, if you kind of think about it, um, and I think I understood your question probably. I mean, once you have these massive amounts of data that you can harvest, 
because the data's mm -hmm. been there, but it's just, uh, you know, I would say in the last 10 years, they could have been, uh, or the industry in general could have been taking advantage of this data. And it has to say is that all this data that's basically there in terms of the transactions, once you start harvesting it, you can just basically take the amount of transactions, which generate that data and already start optimizing with very simple pieces of the process, right? So a lot of people talk about AI uh, in general. And when you think about AI, it's basically, you know, the machine thinking for itself. We all have kind of from, from movies and films and whatnot, this, this vision of what AI is, but you know, there's a very, there's a very long term immediate uh, intermediate step called machine learning. That's the dirty mm -hmm. secret, secret of AI that anyone who knows what they're talking about knows that it's just machine learning. If this, mm -hmm. then that is pretty much the, uh, the, the dirty secret. But once you start doing that, I mean, we see that alone with our technology. If you see a specific behavior and then you can have the software adapt automatically to it, some, you know, demographic pays at a certain time. Well, hence, then the software should obviously trigger that messages are being sent at that time to that demographic. Mm. It's not rocket science, right? But it's it's just not being done. If you think about that in the typical collections process, that process is kicked off with a physical letter. And even in that situation, you, you're just not getting as much data as you could if you were to send an email in, in mm. comparison. Physical letter, you don't have any confirmation of it being delivered. With an email, you can still see if that email was delivered and if it was opened. Right there, just that piece of data allows you to start kind of testing um, different approaches as part of your collection strategy. And that's so, so, so last last year, at least over here, there was a lot of noise around, or a lot of discussion, I would say, around AI uh, as a, almost like as a, as a banner that was used. And you sort of explained a little bit about machine learning. But do you think there's there's uh, special, almost like use cases that are that are best in collections that, to look at? Um, I think I think you know we'd looked a little bit around sort of almost like contact strategies and decisioning strategies or segmentation. But do you think what, what's your view around where is it best? Where's where's best to focus first? It's got the biggest almost like bang for the buck. Well, I think the segmentation probably plays the biggest um, the biggest role mm -hmm. in the sense of that you can actually speak to your end customer based upon their behavior. Um, mm -hmm. I always like to use the example of you know the 45 year old executive or the 21 year old student. There's, you know, mm. there's worlds in between there and how those two uh, individuals will ultimately behave and being able to segment around um, those details and then adapt automatically the content as well as the communication channels. Because mm. again, it's uh, what, what we're doing, for example, and a lot of other people are trying to do is that they're, they're trying to adapt the content at point of, um, so to speak, injection into the process, i.e. Mm. right now, a lot of times the content is pre-configured. There'll be multiple templates used. But ultimately, you can have thousands of, if not you know, hundreds of thousands of templates that can mm. also be dynamically, ser you know, sent out um, uh, as needed to an uh, uh, to a to a respective um, segment. And then also the the timing around that, again, just based upon time of day uh, when you send um, the communications out, followed by look and feel. Again, certain people are going to uh, react more to certain channels, be it you know WhatsApp message versus an email. There's also kind of a look and feel aspect to that. Right now, it seems kind of very touchy-feely is the term I like to use, but it uh, mm. ultimately can all be analyzed and you can see if certain things work better. And I it's quite interesting on test and learn. I mean, so it's like test and learn has been around for quite a long time. So you try different strategies and they're sort of, they usually play out, then you learn from them, you, you adopt one. I think what's quite interesting, what you're saying is almost like, how do you do that? And if you look at the FinTech world, uh, do A-B testing on a much more massive scale and with, with, with much small cha smaller changes like, you know, yeah. types types of, you know, types of presentation of a, of, of a document or slight wording changes, those kind of things, and do that almost like on a much more sort of yeah. almost like industrial type of scale, which is machine learning, I suppose. Well, of course. I mean, yeah, and I mean, think about it even a step further. I mean, um, I, don't, I don't look at building my own company uh, based upon the processes of a large DCA in Europe. I actually mm. look at Facebook uh, and say, well, how's Facebook learning? 
um, to mm. basically serve the messages on your Facebook stream. I look at it more from even almost like a marketing perspective. Um, all the marketing technology that's been out there for 10 years is doing exactly that. It's basically testing mm. and then uh, delivering basically what works. One thing that I would add to the to the testing aspect, though, um, is that don't forget that right now, if you look at the testing that could possibly be done with the current processes, you could throw three, four, five variables into the mm. equation. Once you do it completely digitally and your processes are automated, you could be throwing thousands of variables uh, mm. at the algorithm. And that's where the difference comes. And I mean, if you think I always, I, li I like using the Facebook model. Facebook can test everything because they have billions of transactions or not even transactions, mm. but kind of interactions happening on your stream. And think what you will of Facebook. I'm not the biggest fan, but at the end of the day, they've become so sophisticated in terms of targeting everything that happens. And this is basically QA testing, right? I mean, it's it's yeah. uh, it's basically going back and forth um, and seeing what works and sticks and what doesn't. Um, yeah. You still have enough transactions in a collection process as well to learn as quickly. And, and how do you think about it? So a lot of a lot of a lot of um, you know clients or a lot of um, creditors will have quite low volumes. And so so how how do you think of that in terms of like creating the volumes to be able to do that? So I mean, the more data, the more meaningful it's going to be. Um, you know, if you've got a if you've got a relatively small number of accounts. Um, or a slow, slow number of people, small number of people in collections. I mean, how how do you sort of adjust that? Do you think you'll be able to share some of the principles across different creditors? I was about to say it's, it's the only chance is network effects. I mean, mm. and again, network effects have been around for thirty years, but the collections industry has absolutely had zero benefit from it because everyone's yeah. in a silo of their own business. And be it the enterprise or the DCA, who have basically some kind of technology on the back end, it's completely silo siloed in their organization. Once you have providers like ourselves who are creating a platform where multiple parties are using that platform, there's obviously um, a network effect um, based upon the data that everyone is collecting. And mm. I'm not talking about like specific uh, data to uh, individuals, but behavior and segmentation and whatnot can flow across the platform and create that network effect, which you right now don't have. You have too many yeah. incumbents who are basically completely siloed around the few customers they have. Uh, or conversely, your your use case where you say someone's small and they might have a couple hundred uh, claims per month, they're not going to get the bene benefit of implementing a technology to then harvest the data. They need to tap into a network to get the network effect. So, so, so one of the big questions there was around machine learning or AI, as it's being termed, was was around explainability. So that's that's been a quite a big that's been quite a big topic of discussion, uh, certainly over here. Yeah. Actually, I think everywhere. I mean, what, what's what's your view on that in terms of like how best to approach that? And I think one of the concerns is really around like if you if you're doing making machines to make decisions, if you're using the, the the algorithms to make decisions, you know, at some point you have to get through to a human as well. So I mean, and I think that's the fear that's really going on. Um, so yeah. how do you how do you feel about explainability and sort of transparency and those kind of things? What's 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 the best approach? Do you mean to the users or to the end customers? Because yeah, the end customers uh, should never see it, right? Ultimately. Um, so to the actual purchasers of such technology, let's put it that way, um, my my clients. I think the explainability is um, is still a hurdle. So there's definitely mm. a, there's definitely a fear. I think fear is the right word in the sense that um, you know if I if I let the machine take over, um, it might ultimately start doing something that I don't want that I could also mm. have probably legal repercussions for. What I think you have to do is you have to do an interim strategy, which is what we pursue. We want to basically make it as transparent as possible the way the strategies are set up, um, and then piece for piece allowing the AI to take over more mm. and more of the process. I think you have to learn your way into it and become comfortable with, with kind of the performance. And at the same time, you also have to track it and make sure that you understand exactly what's happening. And not from mm. a technical perspective, but simply from um, making sure that you're not, for example, in a country where you're not allowed to send a WhatsApp and all of a sudden 
the algorithm decides to start sending WhatsApp in that country. Mm. You have a major issue as uh, as a user of that technology. You have to make sure that you're comfortable with the decisions that the that the software makes and the algorithms ultimately make, so that you're comfortable letting more and more of those processes be um, be steered by the AI. I mean, I think I think I think it's, it's interesting, but there's also and there's also a a little bit to the end consumer as well, which is almost like the, the transparency and the explainability piece feels like it's holding back some of the mathematical techniques. So, for example, neural networks seems quite held back by that because it's kind of like, well, it's gone into a black box. Do I really know how it's how it's coming out? Um, and it's going to give me a decision, particularly around lending decisions, or particularly around like so, like where, where the hard where the hard decisions in terms of and it, yep. and mathematically it probably does better describe it because that's what the the maths and the stats will say. However, I think there's a fear around that, and so people seem to have almost like it's held back neural networks as almost like as the algorithm and sort of gone into things like uh, random forest and those little things that are a little bit just a little bit easy to explain because you've got decision trees as an example. Mm. Um, and I, I just wonder if we'll ever if we'll ever be able to use that or do you think it's going to hold it back longer term or does it limit where it needs think, to get get applied i think we get there eventually the question is uh what's the timeline to get there um i think there's going to be a lot of uh, fits and starts kind of until then and i also think there's also certain things where you have to simply kind of determine at what level do you let the machine take over if it's a low value claim let the machine kind of make the decisions. If it's a high value claim, steer kind of far early into the process into a human interaction, for example, especially if it comes to some kind of an installment plan that's being offered or whatnot, which ultimately indirectly is lending, right? Um, so what you want to do is you want to actually put kind of stops and starts into the, into the system that allow kind of at a very early stage right now for things to kind of diverge into a path where there might be a human interaction. If it's a low value um, uh, claim or interaction, then you can let it, you know, completely run, so to speak, mm. um, autonomously. Um, I think that's going to be kind of the interim step where you're just going to kind of also segment by value, and everything that's uh, very low value will completely be steered into a self-service path without any, you know, opportunity to get anyone on the phone. Conversely, mm. if it's something that's of more value or even maybe not necessarily financial value but customer value. Uh, where you throw that. I mean, I, I think down the road, I mean, let's let's take a little step back from collections. One of my theories about um, customer service in general is that we're now also evolving into a into an era where customer service might be the differentiator uh, uh, in terms of human customer service, right? I mean, mm -hmm. there was all these examples of the last 10 or 20 years where some retailer did something in a customer service type of a situation of, you know, whatever, the, the, the clothing store that took back winter tires just because mm. they were so trained about customer service that they that they let mm. someone return winter tires, although they didn't sell winter tires. Um, I think there's going to be a differentiator going forward where certain businesses, by actually letting you get someone on the phone and, you know, talking to you, uh, will be a differentiator versus your competition where you're just forced to okay. go through some kind of automated processes. And hence, I think that you're going to have the segmentation based on, on the actual customer value um, and relationship or whatever you want to call it, lifetime value. Um, that will also keep a lot of these processes at bay uh, because they'll they'll say the customer will reject it if um, yeah. if if they if they feel improperly treated yeah. by the machine. Yeah, it's almost like you'll have the 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 value the value end, which will be much more automated. But then people pay a premium for really good for really good service. Um, you know, I mean, and that's what you do now in certain in certain instances, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you're already right now if you buy a car or you know this in mm -hmm. certain industries where you get the VIP or a premium type of service mm -hmm. where you're basically having everything taken care of. I think that ultimately is going to happen around, you know, banking, lending and whatnot. People are just going to say, I'm, I'm a VIP customer, so I want VIP service. I think I think it's really interesting, even just looking at like these video calls, right? We've got so much more used to video calls over the last like nine months or so. 
And I just Absolutely. think about you think about the kids today who are who are doing this natively. Right. So, I mean, this is this is this yeah. is what they will grow up doing in terms of these things. And, that, and then what's going to happen? And it becomes almost like a bit of a generational divide in terms of before and after. Sure. I mean, we, we've adopted it, but the, 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 the new kids coming through, I mean, they're, they're, they just do this naturally. And it's and it's not just about replicating what went before as much as now there's new opportunity. And you can do things very differently. You can talk to people, you know, across Europe, across the world very easily. I mean, it's, it's just it's new opportunity, really. It also creates all kinds of different uh, ways of interacting. Um, and mm. again, I mean, back to the collections world, if you think about the fact that you could almost get someone into a video call versus just a regular unfriendly normal yeah. call, there is a certain customer service aspect to it where if you actually get a physical person talking to you, um, there's, there's a certain amount of, I mean, especially if you see that they're trying to help you. Right. In yeah. a very kind of, let's call it um, charged situation. If you feel that the person on the other side really actually cares about helping you, um, that can move the needle quite a bit. Um, and it might then be, be a very high value interaction with the customer. Mm. And because that customer is used to it, I mean, think about even two years ago, someone actually video called you. Most people would be like, what's this all about? They didn't, you know, yeah. No one yeah. was doing it. The, kid, the kids were doing it. I mean, we're, we're all kind of age wise. We've already aged out of that. The kids now, you know, let's say they're 10, 12, 14, 18 years old. They were all talking via video before the pandemic anyway. Yeah. We're now just being forced as quasi the old guys to adapt to what's already been the situation in, in the younger demographics anyway. Yeah. So, so, so I've heard that quite a bit in terms of like, um, you know, not being out on the road, not visiting people face to face, not being in the office is sort of like, you know, has that damaged relationships uh, from a business point of view? Has it has it meant that, um, you know, we're basically relying on relationships that were built pre-COVID, right? In terms of like, you know, getting, yeah. getting on with people. Um, and then I've had a contrary opinion, which was really around saying, well, look, these video calls actually really help. And actually it's short video calls that help as much as trying to replicate what we did before. So you need, you can do it, but you have to do it in a different way. I mean, you got a, you got a view on whether the face-to-face -face helps or can we replicate it with video? So my, you know, my background over the last 25 years of my career has been extremely network driven, right? I came out of the investment side. So I was a venture capitalist mm -hmm. for years. Now I'm back to quasi running a startup, which still in and of itself is all about networking, right? Ultimately finding, customers, partners, employees, mm -hmm. it's all about the network. I feel extremely, um, so to speak, um, how do I put it, privileged to have a, an extensive network that I built up over 20 years. So yeah. the fact that everything is now switched to video, I already have that existing network, which I can always fall back on. I do ask myself if someone is right now kicking off their career, which like, for example, a lot of my employees are doing right now, who don't bring that network with them, it's extremely difficult. So exactly what you said, that building out that network, just using video, uh, attending virtual events and whatnot, you don't have any of that serendipity effect, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, over the years of the conferences that I've gone to and the lunches and dinners that I've gone to and people that I've met and kind of just random introductions that you don't get in a one-to-one -one call, right? How many times I've been standing on an event with someone I know, someone else walks by, that person grabs them and says, hey, you got to meet Paul. Yeah. Um, I think that right now, you and I might not even be seeing what's happening in terms of the way people are building networks using the available technology. So um, just uh, again, another example, there's a, there's a software or, or, or a service called Lunch Club, I believe, where mm -hmm. you can just do random meetups. You put in your interests and you get kind of introduced to people and you do a quick mm -hmm. half hour call with them. I do two a week uh, using that technology just for people in the industry trying to you know, just keep my network kind of, uh, kind of stable or growing. It's one of the kind of things that showed up in the last, let's say, six to 12 months where, where networks are being, are being juiced in the sense of trying to uh, make things grow. 
I think I think that the serendipity is quite interesting if you go back to the modeling piece as well um, which is like it's kind of what you build in as well otherwise you get like local local lo local minimums and also all, all of those kind of things as well so it's kind of, of like it's almost like we're having to replicate some of that actually in real life right uh, yeah but I mean I think I, th I find that super exciting and when I actually think about it, is there a way to replicate serendipity that happened in the physical world into quasi an online environment or a virtual environment uh, well well paul it's been fascinating chat to you i could chat with you for for, for enough for another hour i think so uh, uh, really really enjoyed it thanks very much uh and really appreciate you making the time so uh, uh and hopefully we'll chat chat again soon definitely thanks okay. again